The title for this morning's talk is The Mind and the World. The main issue being how do mind and world relate. <coughs> habitually, <coughs> habitually we, we stage them, we see them as separate. We picture the mind sitting in the hall of the theater, theater of life if you wish, watching the world performing <coughs> on the stage. <coughs> this is of course a simplistic view, even inaccurate, but it's a pretty good point of departure for our exploration of how things actually are. And what I've just uh, described as a stage could also be a, a movie screen, the, the silver screen of a movie house. The screen analogy is particularly useful because it allows us to consider our mental projections as well. You see, the screen which has been set up to capture the images of the movie can also <coughs> capture the images that we project <coughs> on it from our mind, and they do overlap. Let, let me illustrate what I mean by this overlap with a couple of examples. The first example has to do with with what I caught myself doing <coughs> while sitting on the toilet, presumably engaged in doing the business I'm supposed to do there. <coughs> but at times, while I'm sitting there, my mind is engage, instead of attending to this primary business, gets engaged, gets engrossed in looking at the tiles on the floor and extricating from them a collection of faces. Odd, is it? But, but I caught myself doing that a number of times. <laughs> Uh, the faces, of course, are not really there. They are faces that I, my mind, projects onto the tiles. <coughs> For all its artifice, the experience ends up being quite revealing. Not because of not because of any identification of the faces, but because it provides an opportunity for me to catch the mind in the act of performing its habitual tricks of deceptiveness. 
Look at it tight. And I see a face. Face wasn't there. Do I buy into those fictions? Well, you know, part of my mind goes one way and buys it. Oh, what a face, whatever. <coughs> and the other part, of course, knows it's <coughs> fake. The second example I want to share with you is particularly revealing because it concerns a projection whose motivation can be understood clearly and obviously. It came up recently during the inquiry period of our sitting group uh, in Rhinebeck, uh, Wednesday, Wednesday nights. Somebody related his experience of becoming enthralled by looking at a beautiful bird in reality. Next thing he knew, he saw himself wishing with all his might that the bird could be frozen, could be embalmed, as it were, so that it would not fly away. Trying, as it were, to freeze a moment of time. Clearly, the projection of this person in the group demanded that the things that he liked, the bird in this case, stop being fleeting and become permanent. <coughs> Which, of course, is what we began, began, demand time and time again. <coughs> about <coughs> particularly the permanency of our own life or the permanency of those who we love. So we project that onto the world. It's not the nature of the world. So as illustrated by those two examples, and I'm sure by many, many others in the experience of all of you in this room. Projections make no bones about falsifying reality. Is that the way we want to go? Well, my friend, if, if that's really the way you want to go, then you're, you're in the wrong place, sorry to say. <laughs> because <coughs> the meditation hall is precisely the place where we come to explore <coughs> things as we are. Things, sorry, things as they are. The practice tries to make sure that neither distortions, distor distortions nor projections mess up the translation of the information coming from the world 
into the information entering the mind. That's why the instructions urge practitioners to zero in on a particular sensation, a simple sensation, say the breath, and stay focused on it until it feel, fills the screen of our mind. At that point, there isn't even any more room for the mind to, in, to indulge, indulge in its habitual nonsense, you know, fantasies and projections. And so eventually, the, the mind has a chance to get in touch with the very joy of being present with reality, because there's a joy in that. But before getting there, it has overcome, has to overcome, as I said, the major hurdle of the compulsion to attribute permanence, permanence to whatever comes our way. Flying birds, and all, and our own life as well. How do we get rid of this compulsion? How can we come to realize that deep inside ourselves, the impermanence of things, our individual selves included? One way to, to ease the way in that direction is to make ourselves fully present with the impermanence of each breath. Each in-breath, each out-breath. As it begins, continues, and ends. Finished. Gone. Then another breath begins, continues, and ends. Finish. And another. And so on for the whole sit. Nothing to hold on to. Each in-breath comes and goes. It out-breath comes and goes. Can we allow this realization to sink in? Can we tune into the reality of impermanence? Beginning with the breath. Can we begin, or can we develop the intention to make a clean sweep with the assumption, of the assumption of the permanence of things? The testimony of practitioners of my own experience says yes, eventually 
we can. It doesn't mean that impermanence is not going to, to be painful at times. If we lose a, a dear friend, of course it can be enormously painful. But it stops being an assumption that permanence is the way of the world. It's not. Of course, re- this is not something to understand by way of reason. Reason really counts very little in existential matters like this. What we need to do is to discover the truth of impermanence by allowing ourselves to be fully present with it. So in order to allow impermanence and all the reality, rest of reality, to show up, we need to look not only in the the theory of life, not only at the area we designate as the world, say the stage or the screen, but also we need to see how things play out in the area, the arena, which we designate as the spectator's mind. In other words, to be fully present with the experience of being, we need to learn to be not only with the inputs from the world and seeing them just as inputs from the world, but also with the mental ground onto which we receive those inputs. You see, the screen of the mind is not just an inert piece of clothing or like a silver screen in a movie theater, but a screen that has a life of its own. To get a complete picture of what goes on, we need to open up not just to the stuff that the world and we project onto that screen, but also we have to get in touch, we have to open up to the vibrancy of the screen itself, the vibrancy of our own mind. You're not separate from the world. We, we vibrate together. Now, let me recognize that while this is the stuff of any retreat, it really becomes pretty evident in the course of intensive retreats. And of course, ours is, is brief. And for some, may have intensity, but it's, it's just a, a blip. So here's a dilemma I'm confronting, in, and I was confronting in planning this talk. 
Should I talk here about perceptions unlikely to be experienced by most of us in a retreat like this? In doing so, might I I not leave you with a taste of unfulfillment? I, I hope not. The contrary. But in fact, there was a risk, and I decided that such a risk is worth taking. That such a risk of leaving you a little dissatisfied is overridden by the benefits of offering you a better sense of the scope of the practice, of the possibilities of So let me offer a brief outline of how our mental landscape can unfold in the course of intensive practice. And truly some aspects of this unfoldment are available in the course of shoulder retreats, absolutely. So, say we are following the breath in the area around the nostrils. And as I said this morning with the instructions, we become more perceptive if you go between the nose and the upper lip and search for the more subtle sensations there. That's not a requirement, but but for some, including for myself, it's a way to go. To go where the subtlety of the sensations demand, as I said this morning with the instructions, a further refinement of our attention. And having refined thus our attention, we are more likely to detect levels of experience that lie below the radar of ordinary mind. Levels of experience that transcend the sensations of the skin, of course, and have more to do with the mental space where the sensations are received. In in Pali, the language of the Buddha, these experiences are called nimitas. Not sure whether I pronounce it right, but... It's spelled N-I-M-I-T-T-A-S. And let me quote for a dis- description of the standard Nimitas. Quote uh, a man called Ajahn Brahmavaso. Sorry, Brahmavamso. He says, Nimitta, in the context used here, refers to beautiful lights that appear in the mind. And he writes light in quotations. I would point out, though, that Nimittas are not visual objects, in that they are not seen through the sense of sight. At this stage of meditation, the sense of sight itself is not operating. The nimitas are pure mental objects known by the mind sense. Pure 
through mental phenomena so rarely visited that perception has great difficulty finding anything at all comparable to these new experiences. That's why Nimitas appear strange, like nothing one has ever experienced before. However, the phenomena in the catalogue of one's man's one's past experiences, which usually comes closest to the Nimitas, are simple visual lights, such as a car headlight or a flashlight in the dark or the full moon in the night sky. So, perception adopts this closest but imperfect comparison and interprets Nimitta as lights. Elsewhere, Ajahn Brahmadasa talks about Nimitas as sounds as well. But let me here go now to Shaila Katharina, an inside meditation teacher based in California. It's a powerful teacher, a young woman, and who recently published a book called Wisdom Wide and Deep and here's what she says in the book about the Nimitas. When I began to explore concentration practice I received no instruction in the use of Nimitta. Neither did I, by the way. Standard Retreats at IMS do not bring up the Nimitas. The mind was ablaze with light, but I had not attributed any particularly significance to this light, not learned to distinguish between the various kinds of brightness, likeness, and spaciousness that arise with deep concentration. Light arose quickly in every meditation and pervaded the awareness of breath. I assume this was just how meditation with the breath appeared. Blinded by familiarity, I did not isolate it as as a significant perception or use it as a tool during those early stages of my explorations. Familiarity can make the most obvious things invisible if we don't know their significance. Until I learned to use Nimitta as a tool to facilitate absorption, it was merely a backdrop to the meditation. In fact, this is a little bit what happens to me or happened to me, except that I don't experience Nimitta's lights. That's why I've quoted others talking about that. That's not my, my actual experience. I experience Nimitta as auditory. Call it a sound, but it's, it's, it's a sound of silence, really. It's a buzz of silence. It's something that, in, when it 
comes up, it invades my whole mind, and 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 that's where I am. Fills the space of the mind. Of course, uh, sometimes uh, when other sounds are around, like sometimes in this room, uh, it may be difficult to open up to the full experience of auditory nimitta. What I'm driving at with the description of something that you may not have experienced or may have and not really practiced with it, the point of that is to emphasize that nimitta's become a tool for getting in touch with the space where the mind receives both its own vibrancy and the vibrancy of the world. Having said all this about the nimitas, please, please, let the nimitas come to you if they come, but for heaven's sake, do not try to create a simulation of them on the screen of the mind. They are not a requisite. They are certainly not a requisite for further concentration, intensification of the practice. Okay, enough about the nimitas. Let me now talk about the jhanas. Oh yes, incidentally, sometimes the nimitas are uh, a step to get into the jhanas, but certainly not a required one. The jhanas. Also in the language of the Buddha, Pali, and it's spelled J-H-A-N-A-S, in plural or jhana in singular. They are really a progression of stages in the practice. And we, we can go through them very well without knowing the details of the description. But the Buddha describes the jhanas in the scriptures many times. And yet again, in places like IMS, uh, jhana practice is not uh, standard. Occasionally, at the Bari Center for Buddhist Studies, and next door to IMS, there is a, a retreat, a jhana retreat. Sure. Anyway, so the jhanas are a progression of stages. Typically, the four stages, four jhanas, I'll just only talk about the first. So, typically the eight jhanas, they say that right. But I'm only going to talk about the first four. The sequence in which the, the jhanas are described. It's really the sequence in which they naturally present themselves to us without knowing 
anything about this supposed sequence. The first jhana, of course, is what we visit when we sit here, state of concentration, and it can get much deeper, and it does get deeper the longer we sit. In the second jhana, what takes over the stage of the mind is a sense of joy, a sense of bliss, sometimes described as uh, rapture. Whatever the words, we get the vibrations of all of that. An important thing is that it's not a delight that we tend to cling to. It's not clingable to. It doesn't have any quality that invites clinging. We can see it's not clingable. So, what are we going to do? When the time is ready, sometimes after a whole day of being there, sometimes after an hour, sometimes after a week, whatever, we let go. We're always letting go. And the next stage is one in which, which doesn't have the intensity of, of rapture, but on the contrary, has a great calm and tranquility. It's different. Definitely different. And we relish it. And yet, once again, you can let go of it when the time comes. When, when the time is right, we let go. So, the third jhana is calm and tranquility. And the fourth jhana is a state of pervasive equanimity. We, 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 feel, we feel suffused by equanimity. If whenever we notice a thought of impermanence, uh, a memory of impermanence, an experience of impermanence comes to us as it does with every breath, no problem with it. We stay put and we see everything come and go. And so on with the other jhanas, not to get technical about them. But the important thing here is that every jhana, every stage, we are ready to let go. Let go. Let go. And it is that way that we can come to a place of a fully empty mind. That's the possibility. That's a gift of the practice. And so, let me review what I've covered so far. Whether by opening directly to the experience of impermanence, as I said before, just being with each breath, for instance, as it comes and goes fully, 
or by going the more uh, stereotyped, if you wish, but very real root of the Nimitas and or the Janus. Nimitas can be an introduction to the Janus, but we can go to the Janus directly as well. Whichever way, in the course of intensive practice, and at times in the course of brief practice too, meditation allows you to step out of the cocoon of the eye. Things have to be kept in, in a certain way and shape. Having stepped out of this cocoon, the mind becomes open to receive the world and itself as they truly are. So let me take a few moments to Contemplate that space where the practice can take us, which may or may not be at this stage part of your experience. <coughs> but, but having a vision of that experience, of that possibility of that space, is important. <coughs> a space of being where we do not have to frame who we are, who others are, not even what the world is. We discover what it's like to exist as we are at each moment and again at the next. We begin to pay attention to a being that has no me in the clinging sense of me, that has nowhere to land, no construct to frame itself in. We begin to pay attention to a being that vibrates in inexplicable ways in an undivided space that has been unburdened of its old baggage, of its frozen relics of the past. In other words, the practice tells us to a place where we can and we do become suffused by the sheer experience of being. Let's just sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.